Welcome to Bible study. This is Nick Krita, your host. Thank you for tuning in. It's a pleasure to be with you again today and looking forward for this study. It's entitled The Hard Way. I'd like to introduce the panel for today and thank you everyone for joining us. I'll start with Len. Good to have you with us, Len. Yes, thank you, Dick, and hello, listeners. Brenton, it's also good to have you. It's nice to be back, uh, Nick, and to be able to share God's Word. Lija, thank you for joining. It's my pleasure. And Will, thank you for coming along. It's always a privilege. Thank you, Nick. Marek, thank you for coming with us from the hills. Delighted to be here on this glorious day. And um, Joe, also, it's very good to have you. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be here. Helen? is our facilitator for today. Ellen, it's a privilege to be able to study together with you and thank you for putting together this study. It's a privilege to learn today a little bit more from the book of Isaiah. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Nick. Appreciate that and I appreciate the panel being here as well. Um, but let's get underway straight away. It is a hard way but we will get underway. Last study, we dealt with Isaiah 7, 1 to, 14, 1 to 14, and it showed us that God brought faithless King Ahaz to circumstances in which he had to make a difficult decision. He had to believe or not to believe. Even though the Lord offered him any sign that his imagination could devise, he refused to allow God to demonstrate a reason why he should believe. Instead, he chose as his friend the king of Assyria. But before we continue, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so pleased that uh, we can open your word and look at these challenging lessons. From these lessons, we can see the nation of Israel and Judah were in political turmoil. It was due to their sin, due to the fact that they had departed from you. Lord, we know that when humanity begins to place its trust in military power, in weapons, instead of the love of God, that we are facing turbulent and difficult times. And Lord, we pray that as we study these lessons, we will learn to trust you, to place our faith in you, not in human devisings. So please help us as we open your word now and seek to be touched by the lessons from it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Merrick. A beautiful prayer. I'd like to start with clarifying some metaphors. There's some very strange things in this study today that we read in Isaiah chapter 7. Perhaps we can discuss those. I think the first one is about a fly and a bee. To understand the setting, we're talking about the kingdom of Judah. And the king, of course, was Ahaz. And he was a pretty hopeless sort of a king, I think. And Isaiah was given messages to King Ahaz uh, in order that this kingdom be a successful kingdom. But Ahaz, can, he kept on refusing the uh, message from the Lord and he looked to other sources. And um, there were various dire warnings given to him about eventual invasion by the Assyrians, and in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 18, I read this. In that day, 
The Lord will whistle for flies from the distant streams of Egypt and for bees from the land of Assyria. Now, anybody who's reading this doesn't understand the context will think, well, what the goodness is all this about? Now, I play golf in the mornings, as I've said a number of times, and I'll tell you what, there's nothing much worse than just before you're ready to make a swing, a fly lands on your eye or on your nose, and it's, it's very annoying. And um, the neighbour who lives behind us has some beehives. Now, I'm not afraid of bees. I've been stung by bees a few times. But when they're buzzing around you, they can also be quite annoying, and especially if they want to land on you. Well, I don't react to that. But if you try and strike them off, well, then they're likely to sting. Now, the flies mm-hmm. mentioned here is simply an invasion, but not a very successful invasion, from Egypt. And the bees, which are probably more serious than the flies, is talking about an invasion from the Assyrians. So here Isaiah is told to let King Ahaz know that there are going to be people who trouble him. The question is why? And I believe that all these messages and these things are to simply wake the king up. And we have things in our lives too that we need to wake up if we're stumbling along, leaving the Lord out of our lives. He will bring things to us now and again to help us wake up and realize that we're on a wrong path. I hope that gives you a good understanding of what the flies and bees are all about. And then just to add something to that, because you may wonder why God is not speaking in terms of, let's say, lions and uh, whatever, bears and some, you know, more powerful uh, creatures. It's interesting that you said about the flies and the bees, and I understand the bees because I have some beehives, and uh, I know what how painful is when you get a, a sting there, but they are all these, uh, you know, two creatures which are mentioned, they are very uh, fragile, very easy to, a little click, you know, you can kill it. They may do damage, and sometimes they even think that they are something, but they are fragile. Mm, that was great. Thank you, Nick. Also, Len, Chapter 720 gives us a statement about shaving with a razor. All right. Well, now there's something else. Still in Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 20, as Helen has just said, in that day the Lord will use a razor hired from beyond the river, the king of Assyria, to shave your legs, uh, shave your head and the hair of your legs and take off your beards also. Okay, one of the greatest dishonours a man of that time would have is to have their beard shaved off in particular. The beard was a sign of a man. When your beard was shaved off, it it kind of suggested that you had lost your power. And the king of Assyria, as well as being a bee or being of bees, is likened to someone who shaves off the hair, taking away all their self-esteem from these Judites, or at least from the king Ahaz. With relation to the the shaving of beards, there's an instance in... um in the story of David, when he sent off his uh, servants to the Ammonites, mm-hmm. and uh, they weren't greeted very in a friendly way, and so they had half of their beards shaved off, shaved off, 
and their garments cut off at the hips. So this was um, severe humiliation and degradation, and it was so bad that the king told them, stay in Jericho until your beards have grown back and then return. So uh, this is just an example of how serious that this was of very disrespectful and humiliating for a man in those days. So also uh, no. just with relation to the rape with the flies and the the bees, uh, the flies will come out of Egypt. And, the, you know, Egypt wasn't the pain that, that um, Assyria was, whereas a bee, that sting really hurts. If anyone's been stung, they'll know. And so, of course, the greater of the assaults, the greater of the, the suffering that's going to be inflicted on Israel and Judah will come from Assyria because a bee hurts more than a fly. Mm, Joe, really appreciated the story you told us about David as well. Will, you had your hand up and then Brenton. I think uh, Joe's just uh, referred to or alluded to uh, how troublesome flies can really be. In Exodus 8.20, we all recall that Moses warned Pharaoh about uh, swarms of flies. He says, on you and your servants and on your people, into your houses and the houses of the Egyptians will be full of swarms of flies and also on the ground on which they dwell, really, really troublesome. Uh, he's using this uh, symbolism to warn that uh, really troublous times are coming. Thank you. Brenton? I think the important point here is I'm not going to comment on the flies and the bees, I think they've been commented on fairly well. Last week's study, we looked at Isaiah 7 and verse 9, which I think said something along these lines, that if you don't uh, trust the Lord, you will not be established. Now, what is happening here, what we're studying about in the flies and the bees and uh, Egypt and Assyria respectively, God is telling Ahaz these things because Ahaz has made a decision in verse 12, where he said, I will not test the Lord my God, or I will not ask for a sign. Isn't it sad that throughout the Bible you can find evidence that God warns people in advance what will happen if they're unfaithful? And even when they've made their decision, he still tries to get through to them. I see in here, Helen, uh, the fact that uh, God is saying, okay, you've committed yourself to a certain course of action. You need to be aware of what the consequences are. And I think that this is what uh, is being said here, that um, you are going to be so utterly humiliated and your country is going to be so desolated that it is actually compared, Helen, to what the situation was like when the ten kingdoms broke, when the ten tribes broke away uh, from Solomon's successor, Rehoboam. God says it's going to be of that magnitude. Now, we all know the trauma that was involved in that. So here he's saying, if you can think back to then, because you would have records of it, you would have history of it. If you think back to then, this is going to be every bit as bad, if not worse. Absolutely. So in actual fact, by those metaphorical expressions, he is, God is signifying the total destruction of their state, isn't he, from head to foot and from the highest to the lowest. But there were many enemies in that land. There were. There were. What's sad about all of this, Helen, is this. God had given him an opportunity to test him, to ask for a sign. God had offered to help him. Now, I alluded just a minute or two ago to history. If you go back to Second Chronicles 13 and verse 12, 
you find the king who came to the throne after Rehoboam, after the kingdoms were split, called Abijah. And in Abijah it says this in verse 12 of chapter 13 of Second Chronicles. Now look, God himself is with us. Did you catch that? Emmanuel is with, our, with us as our head and his priests with sounding trumpets to sound the alarm against you. O children of Israel, do not fight against the Lord God of your fathers, for you shall not prosper. Now, almost the history of Israel, is, is um, subsequent history is found in that one particular verse, Helen. Psalm 118 verse 9 said, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put your trust in princes. Now, if I can apply that to a modern-day example, last night I was watching TV prior to the inauguration of uh, President Joe Biden, and it's interesting that uh, a conservative commentator by the name of Ellen Phillips, who was very well respected in the United States, stated, commenting on uh, President Biden's inauguration, she actually quoted this verse, it is better to trust in the Lord than to trust in princes. Now, I believe that the coinage of the United States actually has written on it, in God we trust. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm beginning to say to myself as I read the story of Ahaz, who refused to do it, are we following in uh, his footsteps today? Is the United States of America also following down the same path that Ahaz is? And I think that's something we need to take on board. So predominantly the problem that A has had was that he d didn't trust God at all, did he? Helen, it's not just, um, you know, we can always look aside to a government, you know, a government elsewhere or, you know, a church, a family, a workplace, but really we could be doing Ahaz, doing the Ahaz in our own lives. When God shows us trust in me and there will be circumstances when it's difficult to trust God in, in view of what's happening around us, but when we lean on flesh, when we trust, when we go to go to others, other sources of strength other than God, we are doing what Ahaz did. Yes. And, you know, it it's might be that he's, you know, lost faith and this and that, but we too, to some degree, could be like that. And we need to always put our faith in God, no matter what's happening around us. And I know that's easy said, but, you know, when you look around what's happening in other countries where people are terrified and suffering, you know, they need to trust God rather than human devisings, trusting the arm of flesh. Thank you. Lynn? Uh, while I agree with what Joe has said, I am thinking of a number of people who've had a medical condition. And it seems very much to me that God permits us to use human resources to help us to a certain point. I'm not denying we should trust in God, and I do, but I think we are expected where there are um, things that are available that we should not just ignore those things and say, well, God is going to make it right. I think ultimately we must trust in God, but there are um, things that we can use. For example, if I'm driving along the road and I get a flat tyre and I don't know how to change it and I'm not really talking about me, I'm just using this as an example, do I kneel at the side of the car and say, Lord, please fix my tyre? Well, I think that's presumption. If somebody comes along and says, what's the trouble? Can I help you? 
then we are wise to accept that help. Does that make sense? If I could just quickly comment on that one. I think, Len, what, what you just said makes sense, even though I believe wouldn't be inappropriate to pray if you have that trouble because God may send you the right person to stop and help you. Otherwise, you may be on the uh, side of the road for a long time. <laughs> yes, well, that's true. And I had a situation where I ran out of fuel on my motorbike years ago when I was much younger than I am now. It was late at night. There was nobody around to help. And I did pray and the Lord, and I, I'll say this, as certain as I'm sitting here uh, participating in this discussion this morning, that the Lord started that motorbike, or at least allowed it to start, and I rode it without fuel until the point where I could coast down a long hill and there was a service station there. Mm. Now, yes. I had no other options. Mm-hmm. But I think where we have suitable options, it's only good sense to use those options. Mm. Thank you, Len. Joe and then Brenton. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that, um, uh, Len. I didn't mean it quite that way, but there are times, there will be times when we've done all that we can and then we do have to trust in God. And sometimes in an attempt to do all that we can, we can go down channels that God does not wish us to go. That's my point. Yes, definitely. You know, go seek a doctor. Do it. Do what you can um, for yourself and to help yourself and others. But there is a point sometimes where, you know, you must, all that's left is trust in God and mm-hmm. we mustn't give up. Yeah. Thank you, Joe. Brenton? The foolishness of this, um, Helen, is this. You've indicated to share a little about why this was foolishness on Ahaz's part. It was foolish because if, if he looked at the history of Tiglath-Pileser III, he would realise that this king was insatiable when it came to conquering other territories. Now, there was a reason as to why Assyria wanted to conquer Judah and Israel and these other um, countries. They wanted access to the Mediterranean, to the trading routes that were available. Assyria was a landlocked empire, and they didn't have access to these trading routes. If Hayes had looked carefully at what Tiglath-Pileser had done up until now, he would realise that seeking help from a man who within two years, as we know, destroyed Syria and Israel, he would realise that you're next on the list. And uh, it seems as though his judgment in uh, who to turn to had been turned away because he refused to um, follow God. I believe there's a very strong case to be made today in our own lives that if we don't follow the Lord faithfully, our judgment is affected. Our ability to discern between right and wrong is affected and also our, our ability to make wise decisions. And I believe he had reached this point where he was confused, he was rebellious and he didn't want to follow the Lord. Therefore, he followed what he thought was the best. In short term, it did seem to work, but long term, it just led to the total subjugation of Judah by Assyria. And if he had looked at the warning signs as to how this king had treated other nations, he would have realised that he was next. Thank you for that, Brenton. Yeah, I think therein is a lesson, is we don't just trust in God with the the final answer, which we ought to, but, but we need to also call on him and ask him to direct us to the right places. 
for those answers. Um, I remember an incident very quickly years ago um, when I was really very ill and someone said, you need to get checked out, you might have chronic fatigue. My own doctor didn't, uh, didn't actually believe in it at the time and um, I got very frustrated, all the tests and everything, and, and couldn't work it out. And I was walking across um, at North Park and um, I was crying and I was crying out to the Lord saying, please direct me to where I, I need to get some answers. And I was directed to the phone box. At that time, they had phone books in them. And I opened up to medical doctors. And this particular one just hit me. I didn't know who this person was. I didn't. It was in Clemsig. And I rang. I made an appointment. I went. I didn't tell. the doc. I took along reports and everything. And um, she said to me, she, you know, took blood tests and what have you. And she said, okay, I'll call you. Well, she did call me very shortly and uh, asked me to bring my husband and son in as well. And when I went in, she told me point blank that I had chronic fatigue and possibly had had it for about eight years. And um, the question was, well, how does she know? It turned out that she was on the research team at Adelaide Hospital dealing with chronic fatigue, mild encephalitis, and her own son had it. And I, I was praising God. He directed, I believe, he really directed me to the right person. I had no idea who this person was, and yet she was the right one that I needed. So that too. But let's just move on. Isaiah 8 is an extension of the Isaiah 7 prophecy. And Isaiah 7 and 8 form a unit on the judgment against Judah. is referred here along with a lot of other elements. But the announcement starts with a single Hebrew name named Mahasal Hasbas that Isaiah's son receives. That's an interesting name, isn't it? Joe, can you share with us? Yes, it um, comes in, in, in chapter 8. And uh, the Lord said to me, take a large scroll and write on it with a man's pen concerning Mahashalal Hasbaz. And, and that's quite a mouthful. It means, according to the Good News Bible, it means quick loot, fast plunder. There are variations of it, but it gives the impression of a land that's going to be ransacked and enemy soldiers are going to come through. They're just going to plunder. They're going to pillage. They're going to take anything of value and destroy. And so when Isaiah actually went to his wife, it says then in verse 3, then I went to the prophetess and she conceived and bore a son. And uh, the Lord said to me, call his name Aha Shalal Hashbaz, for before the child shall know to cry, my father, my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil Samaria will be taken away before the king of Assyria. Now, this was testimony to Judah that this was going to happen to the northern kingdom in Israel. And this was to be a sign because in verse 18, it tells us, here am I, this is Isaiah, here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me, we are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts. So they were living testimonies. They, As they went about their work in the community, every time that boy was called out, there was evidence, there was a, a reminder that this there was a victory ahead. Well, I mean, not in a victory, a victory in the sense that God is going to be vindicated in his prophecy of what's going to happen to the northern kingdom, giving testimony like, you can trust me. I know the future. I know the end from the beginning. And so it's a powerful living message. In Isaiah chapter 8, verses 7, it says, uh, actually, perhaps if we start in verse 5, the Lord spoke to me again. He said, because these people have rejected 
the quiet waters of Shiloh Creek and tremble before King Rezin and King Pekah, I, the Lord, will bring the emperor of Assyria and all his forces to attack Judah. They will advance like the floodwaters of the Euphrates River, breaking its banks. They will sweep through Judah in a flood, rising shoulder high and covering everything. And so we have an example of if they could only but watch across the border what happens in the, you know, the kingdom of Israel, that this very same thing will happen to them if they don't repent if they don't change their ways, this was a, a testimony to them. So God is here giving them a prophecy, if you like, and it's a conditional prophecy because if they were to turn away from their sins and ask for forgiveness, God would not go through with it. He would have protected yeah. them like he did in Hezekiah's time. He's giving them a choice in a sense. Yeah. We can also compare um, what I've just read to Isaiah 7 verse 17. The Lord is going to bring on you, on your people and on the whole royal family, days of trouble worse than any that have come since the kingdom of Israel separated from Judah. He is going to bring the king of Assyria. These are warning messages that uh, Judah, that Ahaz really needed to take very seriously. Thank you, Joe. Brenton, you had something you wanted to comment. Uh, just, just quickly, uh, the text that I read earlier on in Second Chronicles 13, and verse 12 from uh, Abijah. Abijah's comments were very interesting because he was being attacked by Jeroboam. Jeroboam had become the first king of Israel and uh, he was now attacking Judah. And uh, um, Abijah was saying, you are not going to prosper. You are not going to succeed because the house of David is the house through whom God proposes to um, bring salvation. And the interesting point about it is when you read the rest of the story, Helen, you realise that in one day 500,000 men of Israel were slaughtered by Judah. Now, this is directly comparable with what we're studying here. Ahaz is frightened out of his wits by um, Pekah, the son of Remaliah, who's the king of Israel, and by Rezin, the king of Damascus, if he had only heeded what had taken place back there, he would have realised that God uh, was over Judah in that day and he looked after them to such a degree that it says they never grew strong again during the time of Jeroboam. God would have done the same again. Uh, we need to remember, I think there's a statement that you know and all of us know is we have nothing to fear for the future except we forget the way the Lord has led us in our past and his past dealings with us. We need to remember that on a daily basis. And I think these history lessons that we are studying in the book of Isaiah are very, very meaningful in the sense that if we don't learn from history and we don't learn from the experience of these people, we're not only destined to repeat them, probably the situation will be even worse. So there's a very strong focus I see here, Helen, on um, trusting the Lord implicitly in every situation of life, not only the national danger ones, but the little crises in our lives as well. Thank you, Brenton. Len, you wanted to comment? In a certain way, I see Ahaz as being um, similar to somebody who is um, hooked on smoking. Ahaz was given various warnings about various disasters that would come. And somebody who's smoking gets warnings uh, on the cigarette packets and TV advertising. Messages, the messages are there. 
And, and then there might be even more severe warnings like we've just been reading about here that Joe's been talking about, how that uh, certain people might come in and destroy or attack the kingdom. So a smoker might get warnings, well, you're going to be, you're going to smoke as cough, you're more likely to get a heart disease, etc., etc., etc. But when a person continues to not heed the warnings, they cannot expect anything good to come out of it. And I think there's a big lesson here, which could be applied in that way there. I'm not having gut smokers, I'm just talking very generally. Okay, thank you, Lynn. And um, Lydia, would you like to take that next section, please? In Second Kings 16 tells us that the king of Judah chose to trust in the Assyrians' sovereignty and not in God. So because of uh, King Ahaz's wickedness, the Lord has humbled Judah because of this King Ahaz of Israel, for he had promoted wickedness in Judah and had been most unfaithful to the Lord. And uh, in Second Chronicles 28-22, uh, it says that in his time of trouble, King Ahaz became even more unfaithful to the Lord because he offered sacrifices and um, he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, uh, which has defeated him and said, uh, because the gods of the king of Aram helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But uh, they become the downfall of him and all Israel. Moreover, when Ahaz gathered together the utensils of the house of the of God he cut the utensils of the house of God in pieces and he closed the doors of the house of the Lord and made altars for himself in every corner of Jerusalem in every city of Judah he made high places to burn incense to other gods and provoked the Lord the God of his fathers to anger uh, he rebelled against God, the true God, and he chose the other side. He knew God from his father and grandfather, but he chose not to trust in God because he had a relationship with God. We are studying uh, today uh, particularly about the hard way. What's the context here? God has a plan. In his mercy and love, he wants us back. He wants to deal with the sinful nature, with everything else, and, uh, and through Jesus Christ, he provided that. Now, if we are not willing to ally or realize with God in his plan, there will be some other people, but will miss out. Will miss out. This is the main um, lesson for me up to here. And as we look forward uh, a bit further, we need to wake up not to miss out in the plan of God, because God is going to carry on his plan. If it's us, if it's me, that's a different story. It's up to us. It's up to our choices. And here people had choices, choices. and the Bible is presenting to us, even like a, a very unfaithful king, God is giving opportunity to him and his people to turn around, and not to be uh, destroyed. Unfortunately, they had to, to learn the hard way. I would like yes. to mention the fact that 
Ahaz was so, I consider him that he was so arrogant in spite of the fact that the Lord came back to him so many times to save um, the throne of Judah because this was, um, the attack was directed particularly against the dynasty of David and the Lord had no intention of allowing the dynasty of David of David to become extinct. And in, in spite of God's attempts coming to him so many times, he just became uh, colder and colder and distant and more distant. So this applies to me. If God co- comes to me many times in my life to save me from this or from that or to draw me closer to him, am I going to turn a, a deaf ear or a blind eye to God? So this is a lesson for me. Mm. I think it's a lesson for all of us. Yes. But thank you, Lydia, for sharing that. Mary, was the prophecy actually fulfilled? Completely fulfilled. Uh, it's so sad that uh, for Ahaz, it was more expedient to consider himself to be the son and servant of the king of Assyria rather than the servant of the invisible God. And uh, I, I think of the difficult role that Isaiah had to play here. He pled and uh, reasoned with Ahaz, but Ahaz continued to reject. And of course, at some stage, Ahaz probably feel, felt that uh, he had uh, strategically achieved a very significant victory because the king of Assyria came to his rescue and uh, and completely uh, destroyed Israel and uh, and. Uh, and and Syria and so forth. And uh, I'm sure that for a moment, Ahaz was riding a peak of popularity mm-hmm. among his people. In spite of all the harm that had been done, here he is, strategically, he had secured a victory. But then, unfortunately, within a very short period of time, the king of Assyria would not be satisfied with with, with the gifts coming from the temple and, and from the... Uh, from the Basel states. He wanted more and more and more, and eventually he became an absolute hindrance and uh, subjected Israel to uh, and, and Judah to uh, complete sort of uh, uh, control, political control. But who was the loser in all of this? We obviously see that people suffered. There were tragic consequences in terms of loss of life, loss of property, loss of wealth, political control. But you know, when Ahaz came to the end of his life, his own people wouldn't even bury him with the kings of Judah. That's right. He was a complete outcast. He wasn't fit to be laid anywhere in the proximity of, of, of King David and, and the, the other kings of, um, of, uh, of Judah. Uh, and who was he in the eyes of, uh, of the king of Assyria? He was absolutely nothing. Politically, personally, religiously, he was an absolute loser because he chose to name himself, refer to himself as being the son and servant of the king of Assyria rather than the son and servant of the king of, of, of the heavens, of the universe. And Marek, that's the fate of the worldly alliances. Whatever people try to do, in the end, it's more like what God is uh, up to, you know, and if he's in control. Mm. Thank you. All was not lost, though, even for all that. Isaiah 7.3 mentions another son 
Shirjashub, whose name was one of hope. And his name meant the remnant shall return. There are several texts in scripture that tells us that God always has a remnant. Yes, I can read the Ezekiel 6 verse 8. He says, but I will spare some, for some of you will escape the sword when you are scattered among the lands and nations. Yeah, and we're going in the New Testament here to, mm-hmm. to see the, um, the parallel. We read in verse 27 of uh, Romans chapter 9, And concerning Israel, the prophet cried out, Though the people of Israel are as numerous as the sand of the seashore, only a remnant will be saved. Mm, thank you, Nick. Brenton. Yes, Helen, Romans 11 verse 5 says this, Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Paul is referring here, if we were to look at verses 1 to 4, we would find that he is contrasting uh, the advice that he is giving to the Romans with what happened to Elijah when Elijah claimed that he was the only one left and God said to him, I have 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Uh, this uh, remnant motif is found not only in the Old Testament, it's also found in the New Testament. And I think the characteristics, Helen, are these. The characteristics of everything we're reading thus far is that in difficult times, in difficult circumstances, when the true God and his name and his religion seem to be trampled underfoot by everybody, there is always a group who are faithful to him. They're faithful to him in worship. They're faithful unto death. And um, that's something, the lessons that we learn from what we're studying today need to be applied in our own hearts and our lives today. We live in a society that is basically anti-Christian and it's very, very difficult these days to be a Christian up front, out out in front, um, showing that we are Christians and showing that uh, our lives and our uh, moral standards are different from those around about us. But that is what God is calling us to. And I like this term that I just read, a remnant of grace. The remnant is characterised by the fact that they have totally, um, as it were, accepted God's grace. God's grace has flowed throughout their life to such a degree that they are a living example of what God's grace can do in a person's life. Thank you. And we are going to talk in a moment on Revelation. Yes, before we go. I think that the, the name... Um, the remnant shall return is a is a comfort. It's a message of comfort yes. because there would have been many in Judah who were faithful, like Brenton said about you know there were God had reserved seven thousand who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal, and so there would have been the faithful in Judah who unfortunately suffered with the guilty yes. and the sinful, and so. Whereas maybe Ahaz didn't find much comfort in that, there would have been those who took great comfort in it. We know that Daniel himself later was in Babylon and he read the books of these prophets and gained great comfort and looked forward to a restoration and a return to um, the land of Israel. And so these messages aren't just for the wicked. There are warning messages for those who need to repent, but there's also messages of comfort to those who are suffering, if you like, undeservedly. 
Yes. And give hope to all of us, don't they? All of us. And particularly now, don't we, throughout history, all those who've been faithful can look at these messages and, and still get comfort from them. When you talk about the remnant, uh, even in our days, people are, uh, you know, um, pointing towards their beliefs. Some of them even thinking uh, uh, in general, you know, like in masses that uh, will be saved, this group or the other group. I mean, just take the physical Israel right now. There is a, lots of theological uh, debate and talk about the salvation of Israel. Now, in many other denominations, there are people, as you mentioned, Joe, faithful, sincere people. God has a remnant of his own. Those people who trust in him and obey him and follow him, even though sometime the situation of the certain groups or churches, whatever, may not look like that uh, they are pulling through. But God has a remnant. And this mm-hmm. is important to realize, not to put your trust in whatever it's glorious, powerful, uh, and so on and so forth, but to put your trust in the Lord, in God, and follow him in the whole truth. Thank you, Nick. Lynn, would you share us from Revelation? Yes, there are two texts in Revelation which point out that God does have remnant people. These are faithful people. Remnant, uh, I'm sorry, Revelation 14, 12 says, This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints, that's the remnant, who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. And then there's another one. Talks about the dragon, who's basically the devil, was enraged at the woman and went to make war against the rest of her, that's the church's offspring. And that's from Revelation twelve seventeen. So God does have a faithful people in any age, but more importantly, we need to be part of the remnant in this last age. Mm. Thank you, Lynn, very much. Lydia, yes. you have something to say? Yeah. Yes. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 10, it says that God is with us. Devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Purpose your plan, but it will not stand, for God is with us. The, and in verse 13, he says, The Lord Almighty is the one who are to regard as holy. He is the one who are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And he will be a sanctuary. But for both houses of Israel, he will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. We know that in Judah, there uh, dwelt some people who maintained their uh, allegiance to Jehovah, steadfastly uh, refusing to be led to, into the idolatry. It was to these that Isaiah and Micah and their associates looked in hope as they surveyed uh, the ruin wrought during the last years of Ahaz. Their sanctuary was closed, but the faithful ones were assured that God is with us. So in Isaiah 8, 10, 13, and 14, it says that sanctify the Lord of hosts himself and let him be 
your fear and let him be your dread and he shall be for a sanctuary. It's a beautiful promise for those who are sticking to remain closer to God in spite of the circumstances. Thank you so much, Lydia. Appreciate that. We've got a last segment here in our study today from Isaiah 8, 16 to 22. It also refers to Ahaz, but it is a good lesson for us today to stay away from similar actions. So let's just very quickly summarize some of these ideas. Joe, 2 Kings 16, 3 and 4. Okay. Thanks, Helen. Uh, in, in those verses, it says that he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire, according to the abominations of the nations, whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills and under every green tree. We get the impression here that he's, um, he's organized a lot of, you know, every green tree were there shrines all over Judah commemorating these false deities. Uh, mm. He himself had made his son pass through the fire, and I'd read somewhere that um, that Hezekiah was snatched from one of the, he was marked, marked for to be sacrificed, and that apparently his mother, Abiah, this is Jewish tradition, Abiah, which means my, my father is Jehovah, um, had actually saved him and snatched him from, uh, rescued him from being, basically sacrifice. So thank God for that. Joe's touched on uh, some of the things that he did. Uh, I'm not going to um, cover those, obviously, for obvious reasons. Um, what I want to look at, Helen, is verse 24 of the same, of chapter 28 of Second Chronicles. It says this, So I has gathered the articles of the house of God, cut in pieces the articles of the house of God, shut up the doors of the house of the Lord and made for himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. Joe has touched on this, so I'm going to confine my comments, Helen, to one thing. He shut the doors of the house of the Lord. Now, that means that's that's to me is an irrevocable decision that he has made because the house of the Lord was where they sought guidance. It's where the priest officiated or the priests officiated. It's where God's will was sought. He has closed the doors, therefore he can no longer expect any protection from God whatsoever. And Marek touched on the fact that when he passed away, and which is found in the subsequent verses, he wasn't buried in the tomb of the kings of Judah. There's only one other king in the history of Judah and Israel who had that happen to him, a king by the name of Jehoram, who happened to be the son of Ahaz, of Ahab, I should say who married Athaliah, we all know about that particular story. The humiliation that was experienced when he passed away by being buried in probably common ground uh, rather than in the royal tombs gives you some idea of how the people of the land, despite the fact that most of them had apostatized, it emphasizes what regard this king was held in. And we've always got to remember that amongst all of those, there's still this faithful remnant who have suffered along uh, with uh, the wicked. And it's no different today, Helen. The good suffer with the wicked. And that will continue to be the case, I believe, until we see our Lord come in the clouds of heaven and he finally rescues us from this world. Okay, we, thank you, Brenton. He was heavily connected, interconnected with the occult. And, yes. and Will, I think we even see that he was sacrificing to demons. Yes, um, Deuteronomy 32 verse 17 said that uh, they, was, they sacrificed 
to false gods, which are not God, gods they had not known, gods that had recently appeared, or recent gods, gods your ancestors did not fear. But Paul commenting on this actually says, no, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons and not to God. That's interesting. Hmm. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. Wow. Idolatry here, he categorizes as offerings to demons. Yes, and that's very strong, isn't it? Lynn, could you please share a quote from one of my favorite books? I think it's one of yours as well, The Great Controversy. It was written many years ago, and yet it's so very up-to-date today. God hates idol worship, but God also hates devil worship or demon worship. And anything that uh, where a person is worshiping a demon or an idol is abhorrent to God. And I was just thinking about the modern times. You know, people consult their horoscopes to make decisions about what they should do tomorrow. That to me is crazy, especially since I know a little bit about who writes the horoscopes. I think we'd be far better off to consult God and put our lives in his hands rather than look at horoscopes or fortune tellers and I have to point out, too, the devil worship is very prominent these days. Yes. There is a church called the Church of Satan. Mm. People attend that, and they do not have the approval of God. In fact, God condemns it out of hand. Thank you, Len. This particular book was written over, what, 100 years ago? Mm-hmm. and more and I, I i noticed that quote too it said spiritualism which numbers its converts by hundreds of thousands yea by millions which has made its way into scientific circles which has invaded churches and has found favor in legislative bodies and even in the courts of kings this mammoth deception is but a revival in a new disguise of the witchcraft condemned and prohibited of old mm-hmm. that's definitely you know up to date isn't it that we're reading what lessons have we actually learnt in chapter 7 and 8? Uh, Nick. Yes, uh, Helen, I think uh, if we look back uh, in, in these two chapters, we learn clearly one thing, that the holy people of God, they find themselves in pagan practices. I'd like to say something now. It may be a bit difficult, but how many pagan practices are found in Christianity today, Christianizing some of those pagan practices. And if probably we can mention a few of them, or if not, even looking at ourselves sometime, how far we can be from God's purpose with his people to be holy, to be set apart. I know this will uh, cause maybe some uh, disturbance with some people, but we know Christmas, we've just been through Christmas, a pagan festival, a pagan celebration. And we Christianize it so well that we forgot about God's message for this time in terms of Jesus Christ. And we'll look at that. He was Emmanuel, God with us. Helen, chapter 7 and 8 predicted the fall of Israel and Syria. God was warning 
his people. God is still warning his people of things to come. We would do well to study the Bible and particularly to study the book of Revelation, which will have a lot of things to say for the time we live in. Also, if you like to read a good book for this time, is the book called Great Controversy. And there are many warnings there and we'll, we'll do well if we'll uh, uh, take notice of that. Like Assyrians and Israel, let's pray to God that we'll turn to him before it's too late. Thank you, Nick. Appreciate that. Uh, Marek, you have your hand up. Uh, Helen, a very interesting and inspiring lesson that I have been able to benefit from in verse 18, chapter 8, verse 18, in, is in spite of the fact that the voice of God was so unpopular at the time of Isaiah, I love the resolution here in verse 18 where Isaiah says, Here am I, and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells in Mount Zion. We can be surrounded by all sorts of evil influences and political influences and opposition to God, but what a wonderful testimony when Isaiah says, Here am I and the children the Lord has given me. We choose to remain faithful to him, and in doing so, that is our testimony to the world. We are the signs and the symbols. Uh, I find that incredibly inspiring and motivating when I read it. uh, One of the beautiful lessons out of these two chapters. Thank you so much, Marek, for that. Lydia? For me... The message from these two uh, last uh, lessons that we learned, the, the life application message is trust in the Lord and not in man, because he is in control. He is uh, the only one um, that uh, has the love and the power to guide, to protect and provide. And he is the only one to change the course of our lives from bad to good and to listen to his uh, warnings, to his attempts for us to guide us and to lead us in our lives and in any decisions that we have to take. Lessons that I've learned from this, Helen, personally, is that when we are with, when we are walking with God, we have nothing to fear. Yeah. You know, that the average heart will, you know, tremble over, and so we can gain a lot of confidence in that. But if we find that we have wandered away and find ourselves perhaps in the dark. And some of our listeners and, and ourselves, we, we can find ourselves getting into shaded areas that um, there is hope. There is hope. If we call out to God, and it's never too late, if we call out to God, he will hear us. Mm. So Ahaz had opportunities. God gave him so many opportunities to reach out to him, and yet Ahaz would not. Okay. Thank you. Lynn, did you have a very short answer to that, what lessons we've learned? Uh, yes, I do. Relates to what I was saying before. God hates the occult, devil worship, spiritualism, all that thing, all that sort of stuff is anti-God. And when a person comes out of that, it's, it shows they really respect and honour God. No Christian, I mean no Christian, should be involved in the occult. Mm-hmm. That's so true. And, Will, did you have something that you want to add to that? 
text of uh, Proverbs 4 verse 12 comes to mind. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. If I may, in Proverbs chapter 3, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Thank you, Will. That's a good text, and I think we'll finish there. Um, We'll finish with prayer. Thank you very much, panel. Um, There was a lot in this study and probably a lot more we could have covered, Um, but I hope we've all gleaned from it. Number one, we do need to definitely trust in God. Is that right? And follow that counsel that Will has just shared from Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Will, would you close with prayer for us, please? Certainly. Lord, the fall from grace is a present danger for us all, nations or families or individuals. And we know that our only security is in the Lord, our God. Keep our trust in God and lead us to salvation in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for uh, this um, interesting Bible study, talking about the hard way. But, you know, we have a promise and we're looking forward in our next program for noble prince of peace. Please come back and we are going to learn a bit more about God's plan and his assurance for us all. May God richly bless you and keep walking in the footsteps of Jesus.